Thank you, Noel. We're continuing in Ephesians, and we'll be picking up in chapter 6. If you would stand, we're going to be covering the first nine verses of Ephesians. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the integrity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Serving with good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Heavenly Father, we pray you are blessed by the reading of your word. Amen. You may be seated. So two weeks ago, we fin- as we finished up chapter 5, we saw that due to the all-out assault on families, what the biblical approach is that, that is really needed now more than ever so that Christian marriages can thrive in this current evil age. Tonight, as we take up chapter 6, we recognize this assault on families doesn't just include the relationship between husband and wife, but also between children and parents. And chapter 6 also takes up with the Christian in the workplace, with Paul focusing on the relationships between servants and their masters. Two weeks ago, we looked at the godly order in the Christian marriage, that there is mutual submission among believers to treat others better than yourselves. This is true among believers, but especially true in marriage, where wives are subject to be their own hus- to their own husbands, And husbands are called to love their wives and provide for their needs. And Scripture is clear that these commands are unconditional. They mirror Christ's unconditional love for His people. His grace poured out, calling His people to repentance and faith. And listen again again to the command for the mutual submission of husbands and wives to show each other grace and unconditional love from chapter 5. Verse 22, wives be subject to your own husbands. As to the Lord, in verse 33, the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Then verse 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then verse 33, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And I suppose it is these relationships in the godly home that are built on unconditional love and grace that the world has such a hard time with. Because the world doesn't understand unconditional love, and they don't understand grace. But these simple Christian attributes stand as the essential Christian, essential building blocks of the Christian marriage that lead and guide the interactions between husband and wife. And yet they remain foreign concepts to the self-obsessed world. So naturally, if they don't understand unconditional love and grace, 
they're not going to understand mutual submission. What the world does understand is conditional responses, which is really more like a contract. You could even call them if-then contracts. Only if you respect me, then I will love you, coming from the husbands. Only if you love me, then I will submit to you and respect you, coming from the wives. But Scripture tells us there's no conditions that first must be met in the Christian home. There should be none of that if two people are giving grace to one another, loving unconditionally as Christ loved us. No if-thens. Grace must abound in a godly marriage from both husband and the wife, especially given the divine order that God has ordained for our marriages, with the husband leading and the wife following, with the husband granted authority and the wife under that authority, but with one caveat. What is that one caveat? The one caveat is that the husband is first to be in submission to Christ, as Brad spoke of today. Then the wife is subject to her husband. That's the God-designed order. So in order for there to be order in the Christian marriage, the husband first must be called to be a man after God's own heart. Then the wife is able to trust his heart and to be subject to him. Brad quoted 1 Corinthians 11 today. It's worth repeating. Just the order that is in Scripture. But Paul says to the Corinthians, says, I want you to understand. He really wants them to get this. That Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of the woman. And God is the head of Christ. That's the order of submission. Now our verses tonight, they continue in this same sense of submission to one another. First, we'll look at the within the godly Christian household of children and parents at how this order is kept when the children are added in. Then we're going to look at how the order is kept in the sphere of the Christian in his workplace. Paul using as examples slaves and masters. So let's first look at our first point, order in the sphere of raising children. This is verses 1 through 4. It reads, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So in verse 1, we see that children express their submission. How? By obeying their parents. Paul uses a stronger word here. He uses the word obey rather than the softer phrase that he used for wives. You remember from chapter 5 when he used be subject to? We also note that in the Lord modifies obey here. It It doesn't modify the parents. Making it clear that the children's obedience has qualifications. It's not blind obedience. I mean, what if the parents commanded what God forbids or forbid what God commands? For example, a child... A child's parents forbid the child who is soundly saved, of proper age, wanting to be obedient to the command of being baptized, and the parents prevent that child from being baptized. Now, this action by the parents, of course, would not be considered in the Lord, as in in the Lord's will. Also, this in the Lord distinction is important for understanding the all things, as recorded in the parallel passage in Colossians 3. Colossians 3 records, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is pleasing to the Lord. So we can rightly get the impression when you take these two verses together that children should obey their parents in all things in the Lord, which is pleasing to the Lord. 
This is clearly saying that being obedient to the parents is being obedient to the Lord himself. Parents stand as representing God to the child. And no child who disobeys his parents will come to obey God. One of the signs of the end of the day, end of days, is a disobedience of parents, of children to their parents. And it seems like there's never been a time when there's such an effort by the government, the government schools, school boards. They've been so aggressive in promoting children to break off from their parents' authority. It's amazing in all things. This demonic desire to destroy the family couldn't be more wrong. But look at what Paul says at the end of verse 1, stating that for children to obey their parents in the Lord couldn't be more right. This is the natural law, even in societies outside of Judeo-Christian morality. Look at verse 1. It ends with, for this is right. Now, the word dikaios is the word he uses for right. That's the same word used for righteous. So this is right. This is righteous to obey your parents. And so serious was this righteous obedience that disobeying your parents was not only listed among the worst sins, but it was also deserving of death. Listen to Romans 1. It says, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do the things that were not not proper, having been filled with all unrighteousness. Now listen to this list. Wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents is right in the list with them. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, So being disobedient to your parents was a capital offense, worthy of death, punishable by stoning in the Old Testament. Did you notice that? They knew this. They knew this is a righteous requirement of God. How did they know the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments? So righteous, so pleasing to the Lord is it to obey your parents that Yahweh made obeying your parents the fifth commandment. Repeated right here in verse 2, which reads, honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with promise. So Paul quotes from Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. The Jewish readers would also know the importance of this command to honor your father and mother from the Pentateuch, uh, elsewhere in the Pentateuch. In Leviticus, it reads, then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God am holy. Every one of you shall fear his mother and his father. So back to verse 2, Paul says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. So how are we to understand this phrase, first commandment with promise? There's much speculation, of course, about this. But I think it's best to understand this by going back to Exodus 20, which explains, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. The Jews believe that Yahweh rewarded those, that Yahweh promised those who were obedient that they would have long life, that they would have prosperity. And this is the idea in verse 3 when Paul records, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. In the New Testament sense, this live long in the land as with eternal life 
which starts at conversion, has to do with contentment, has to do with peace, with joy. It has to do with the quality of life as opposed to some numerical benchmark. And not as a blanket promise, but I think as a general promise that those who, to those who honor and obey their parents. Now, verse 4 reads, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And here we see the qualifications as on fathers manifesting the mutual submission. Not just commanding children to submit to their parents, but that fathers, and I, I tend to think mothers here as well, show submission to their children to not provoke them to anger. Or as our Scottish brethren would say, not provoke them to wrath. So limits here are placed on fathers and mothers in the orderly raising up of their children. And surely this is a command to keep in proper context in the command to obey, not to include irritating or exasperating your children. Even as our children may be experts in irritating and exasperating us. We're not to return the favor. And this is the important negative denial, not to use this commandment to obey as a cudgel to hammer your kids into obedience. And this could also mean over-disciplining, guilt-tripping, setting unrealistic expectations, unfairly comparing them, making them perform for your affection, or crushing them with sarcasm or ridicule or even neglect. The command is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So clearly the positive affirmation, this is about discipline, not punishment. For the high goal of discipline and instruction of the Lord, not of the parents. For children spiritually belong to Christ, first and foremost. Even as the parents are to provide this discipline and instruction. So inherent here is the responsibility for parents to first be instructed in the word. Right? While understanding there's a priority for moral instruction through biblical doctrine, knowing the fallenness of children from birth, the vipers in diapers, as Vodi always says, or as Proverbs 22 says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. This with the goal for the child to not want the evil desires of their heart, but that they would desire the holy desire to obey because that's what pleases and honors God, honors Yahweh. So the Christian parent is to constantly teach their children about the truth of God, judgment, grace, repentance, forgiveness, salvation. Now, often the rod may be needed, but so is encouragement, as none other than Martin Luther once said, spare the rod and spoil the child. That is true. But beside the rod, keep an apple to give him when he is done well. Finally, no one modeled honoring their mother and father more perfectly than our Lord Jesus Christ, who his whole trajectory of his perfect life was focused on one goal, and that was to do all that the father commanded. And he did that. And for this, his father was well pleased. At the cross, John 19 records Jesus' concern for his mother when he said, when it reads, when Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Thus, Christ honored and fulfilled the fifth commandment, just as he honored and fulfilled all of the Ten Commandments. For it was Christ who said, do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but I came to fulfill 
Now to our second point, the order in the sphere of the Christian workplace. This is verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6. And it reads, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the integrity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, serving with good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. There's no partiality with him. Now, it's important to understand the difference between a servant and a slave. In Roman times, a servant received wages, voluntarily worked agreed to hours, and could quit at any time. A slave was afforded no such luxury. By the way, a slave, a doulos, is not a bondservant. A doulos is not a servant, but is translated properly as slave. Also, when Paul wrote, the, wrote Ephesians, a slave to a Jew was not the same as a slave to the Romans. And certainly, Paul could never have imagined at that time a slave in the 1800s. Slavery was a part of the social and economic fabric of the ancient world, so we must understand its context before we can apply that context to, to Christians today. For it was, Christ who, it was Christ himself who picked slavery as a picture of our relationship with him. He is our curios. He is our master. We are his doulos, his slaves. Biblical slavery of the Old Testament was quite different. It had strict rules for Jews to follow. And it's really more about a system of employment than it was about Uh, abusing a fellow human being. There was no human trafficking or kidnapping or even buying or selling. A slave in ancient Judaism was actually living with those who employed them. And we see so many regulations for the Jews to take care of their slaves. If you hit or harmed or knocked out a tooth, the slave was to be set free. You were required to treat your slaves well and to care for them by Jewish law. Even their contracts renewed every seven years. So if you got a slave in the sixth year, you knew you just had one year left uh, before they would be set free. And if a slave wanted to be a slave for life for the family they served, you guys probably know the master would punch a hole in their ear, and then that slave would be known as a family slave for life. And that slave would share in the riches and the status of the family. However, that type of regulated treatment of slaves all changed by the time Paul wrote Ephesians. The Roman Empire had a different social and economic system for slaves. Slaves made up a fifth of the population, which numbered as much as 10 million people. But the Roman corruption of slavery didn't change God's original intention for how people should treat one another any more than it did his original intention for marriage, which, like slavery, has been abused and corrupted throughout the pagan world then and maybe even more so today. Before we begin with verse uh, 5, it's important to note the overall theme of these next five verses. It's, the focus here is not on the horizontal responsibilities of man to man, but rather the vertical responsibilities of man to God. Listen to these verses. In every one of these five, you can see a not-so-subtle reminder there's a higher authority that we're to be in submission to. As we consider this relationship between a master and a slave, between an employer and 
and an employee. Listen to verse 5, first of all. We see fear and trembling as to Christ. Verse 6, we see slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Verse 7, we see serving as to the Lord. Verse 8, we see whatever good things each one does, this he'll receive back from the Lord. Verse 9, we see knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. There's no, impartial, there's no partiality with him. So the guardrails that Yahweh has placed on his relation, this relationship between slave and master lead directly to him. He's the one that we will have to answer to, not to an employer or a business or a company. It was these guardrails placed on slavery, as Paul defined them here in Ephesians, that reminded man that they will answer to a higher authority that ultimately was the basis for the overthrow of the whole corrupt economic juggernaut that slavery had become in the 1800s. The accountability of man to answer to God for his treatment of a fellow human being made in God's image. In, in 1759, a man was born by the name of William Wilberforce. You guys know his name. He was a devout Christian. He spent his year in the English parliament, but he was quite famous for his 40-year commitment to the abolish, abolition of slavery. And that was really his contribution as a Christian to the world. But his relentless doggedness was formed by this understanding that the God of the universe will hold every man accountable. Listen to what Wilberforce wrote. He said, slavery can only be abolished by raising the character of the people who compose a nation. And that can be done only by showing them a higher one. Again, slavery abolished first in the UK and then later in the US and the Western world was, was not the same form of slavery that Paul's referring to here in Ephesians 6 or even the rest of the New Testament. Although it was not as regulated as the slavery in the, the Old Testament under, the Jew, under Jewish law, it was more susceptible to abuse. And Paul, unlike Wilberforce, who sought politically to abolish slavery from the outside in, Paul instead sought spiritually to transform slavery from the inside out for the Christians involved, whether the slave master or the slave, by pressing upon them the mutual submission of the duties of the Christian slaves to their masters and the Christian masters to their slaves, which makes an important point that Christianity was never meant to politically transform this fallen world. For Christianity is not about promoting a political movement, but rather a spiritual resurrection. So naturally, Paul's message through inspiration of the Holy Spirit would not be addressing the morality of the political system of slavery, but rather the morality of the Christians involved in slavery, reminding Christian slaves and slave owners that they have an audience of one. So in verse 1, Paul begins this discourse. He says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the integrity of your heart, as to Christ. So it seemed to matter not whether the master was a Christian or not, as to how the slave was to behave toward his master, a master who is described as according to the flesh. Also, this obedience to the slaves to, to be done with fear and trembling which is a common phrase from the Apostle Paul who mentions fear and trembling elsewhere in regards to himself when in the presence of the Corinthians, to how the Corinthians should receive Titus, and then also how we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And this is referring to our sinfulness, to our spiritual weakness. 
that inward examining of the slaves to their own sinfulness, their own spiritual weakness, is seen in the rest of this verse. It says, in the integrity of your heart as to Christ. Again, the idea for slaves is not to look to man, but rather to look to God, as the verse says, as to Christ. And to do so with humble and contrite hearts, just as the verse says, in the integrity of your heart. Next verse 6 reads, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Again, the aim of the slave is to please Christ, to look vertical to the Lord, not horizontal to, the man, to man. And Paul frames the work of the slave as doing the will of God, which when work is seen in that light, it's seen as a delight. It's not a burden. It's as if our will in the will of God is in alignment. We also see in this verse that there's a desire to do this work of the slave again. It has an internal source. Here it is from the heart, while in the previous verse, it was obedience in the integrity of your heart. This is such a good reminder of the transforming power of the gospel, that when one is born again, he or she is transformed from the inside out, and that you're only working out what God has worked in first. No other religion can make this claim of God working from the inside out. All others work from the outside in through so-called good works. But as we know, no good works can cover, no good works can account for, and no good works can heal the depravity of man. Now verse 7 reads, Serving with good will as to the Lord and not to men. Again, the slave is to look vertical here with good will which can be translated cheerfully, not, not grudgingly or by compulsion, but serving for the master's welfare. Such goodwill is active. It doesn't have to be compelled. It doesn't wait. This same language we see in regards to how we are to give, eagerly and happily. In, Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 9, it reads, Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Next verse 8 reads, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Paul here moves beyond just the slaves, and he addresses all believers, whether slave or free, whether employee or employer, stating that God will render to each according to their deeds, reminding them of the eternal rewards coming at the judgment seat of Christ for Christians even if the earthly recognition and rewards, are, they never materialize. Thus, we all should live in the light of eternity and play the long game, knowing that the only one that matters is the one who's keeping f- score. And finally, we come to verse 9. And masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. In the previous verses, Paul was addressing slaves, that they should seek to please the Lord and to serve their masters as they are serving Christ. Now, in verse 9, Paul addresses the masters. And instead of detailing the treatment they're to give their slaves, he simply tells the masters to treat their slaves with the same respect and dignity that the slaves are to treat them. In other words, as the verse indicates, God shows no partiality between slaves and masters. Here again, we see the mutual submission that we already detail between husbands and wives, between parents and children, for all are answerable to God for their dealings. 
with each other, for he is master of all. Now, Paul does add one additional command for masters to give up any threatening. So no intimidation should be directed towards the slaves. For with Yahweh, there's no pulling rank. For earthly rank has no relevance in heaven. All are subject to subject themselves to one another in ultimate submission to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we've covered at the end of chapter 5 in the first nine verses of chapter 6, wives and husbands, children and parents, masters and slaves. And the message is the same, that there's an order, but there's also a mutual submission in all relationships as believers. Because in the end, we will all be held accountable to God. Now, for a real-life example of this, let's consider the book of Philemon, which we've been reading this week. Philemon had been converted under Paul's ministry, probably at Ephesus. He was wealthy enough to have a house, and he was wealthy enough to have at least one slave, Onesimus, which means useful and was a common name for slaves. Onesimus became a runaway from his master Philemon after he stole money from him. And hoping to hide away, he flees to Rome and connects with Paul, and also is converted. It seemed to happen a lot with Paul. Whenever you run into Paul, you seem to get converted. But that happened to Onesimus as well as Philemon. Now, Paul came to love Onesimus, but he knew Onesimus had to make amends for breaking Roman law and defrauding his master. So Paul sends Onesimus back to Colossae with Tychicus, along with a personal letter to Philemon, pleading with Philemon, forgive Onesimus and welcome him back as his slave and fellow brother in Christ. So Paul's shepherding of Onesimus is illustrative of the truths revealed in this section of Ephesians. And certainly Philemon and Onesimus were on the minds of Paul when he wrote Ephesians and Colossians. But the takeaway here is clear. Onesimus was guilty of serious misconduct toward Philemon. There'd be repercussions. However, Paul is showing here that position matters little. But what does matter is being mutually submissive to a fellow brother in Christ and restoring him to service. And for Philemon to treat his slave Onesimus with unconditional love and grace. For Philemon will answer not to Paul, but to God for his treatment of Onesimus. So, and Paul pleads in his letter to Philemon to accept him as you accept me. Surely Onesimus does not deserve this unconditional love and grace, but neither do we, nor Paul, nor Philemon, for it is but for the grace of God that we can give such grace to others, only because Christ so richly has given his grace to us, just as every believer should extend his grace to every other believer in our Christian walk. And I think that's really the takeaway of this whole section. So let's, uh, let's pray as, uh, before Noel comes up and we'll sing one more song. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this very practical application of how we're to, to treat one another in light of the perfect model of our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are to submit to one another and show grace to one another and unconditional love to one another We're so thankful for this, Lord, the clarity of this throughout chapter 5 and chapter 6. We give you all the grace and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.